Hey, welcome everybody to Kremlin File. Hi, Olga. How are you Hi. doing, babe? Hi, everyone. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for tuning in to our episodes and the live stream on social media. We wanted to give a big shout out to Midas Mighty. Thank you guys huge, for huge your shout support. Out. These guys are democracy warriors. I know, yeah. right? They're amazing. Yeah. Olga, I got to tell you something. I turned on my TV the other day uh-huh. and I had a complete fucking shock. Okay. <laughs> because the Italian, I'm not kidding you. Prices for many fuels have soared to new records in recent weeks. Businesses and households' power bills are rising too. Can Europe keep the lights on? The announcer said, you know, heads up everybody, gas prices, heating, okay, is going to go up 40%. That's incredible. Okay. After a cold winter in Europe last year, the continent has failed to fill its gas storage tanks for the next six months. Now, that failure has sent gas prices surging, and there's very little evidence that there's supply to meet demand this winter. Well, who can we thank for that, Olga? Putin, who send him the bill. Send him okay. the extra. Well, some of the blame for the gas shortfall in Europe has been put on Russia. It's sending less gas via its pipeline through Ukraine. Everybody over the summer, okay, was saying, be careful with Nord Stream 2. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline runs under the Baltic Sea alongside an already existing pipeline completed in 2011. Both pipelines allow Russia to avoid Ukraine when supplying gas to Europe. The European Union already imports about 40% of all its natural gas from Russia. That's why there are growing fears that the new pipeline could increase the EU's dependence on Russia. Italy gets most of its gas from Russia, okay? The Russian providers, okay, of gas, gas from cut supply. So yeah, they've been cutting supply and driving the prices like up through Europe. Exactly. Right, the Kremlin is saying that Nord Stream 2 could help ease the gas crisis, but if they don't have enough gas, how could they end up easing the gas crisis in the end? So. Is this President Vladimir Putin playing politics or does Gazprom not have the gas? But the reality is that there are pipelines with enough capacity through Ukraine to supply Europe. Russia has consistently said it has enough gas supply to be able to do so. And then on top of it mocking Europe and saying, well, you know, if you if you want your prices to go down and to increase supply, then, you know, just uh, just certify, right? Nord this, Stream 2, that's Exactly. It. I mean, right now, you know, the Russian side are very keen, that it, are very happy that it's been completed, but the gas won't start to flow, Gazprom say, until regulatory approval has been granted by the German side. That's exactly what like, they oh, said. Like, oh, look how easy it is. I mean, they're really, they're like, they're like economic terrorists. Yes, They did this exactly. in Ukraine, same exact thing. Exactly. Besides even the fact that they even shut off uh, energy supply in Ukraine in the middle of winter. I mean, this is what they yeah. do. Um, with the completion of Nord Stream 2, which represents a sort of a, a direct link, if you like, between Russia and, and Europe, uh, Ukraine is rather superfluous. Isn't Europe sort of under Russia's thumb there in a way? In a way? Can, can Russia blackmail uh, Europe over political issues, say Ukraine, for example? Well, that would be difficult for Russia because Russia is also dependent on Europe and also on the customers. So they have to sell and Europe has to buy. It's a double dependency. 
The gigantic infrastructure project has even bigger political implications, which Ukraine's president sounded the alarm over in August. I believe this is a weapon. I believe that it's wrong not to see that this is a dangerous weapon, not only for Ukraine, but for the whole of Europe. The 1,230-kilometer-long pipeline would transfer natural gas from Russia to Germany under the Baltic Sea, bypassing Ukraine, which would deal a devastating blow to Kiev's role as a trans its country for natural gas. Kiev fears the new pipeline would give Moscow too much power over energy supplies and could be used by Vladimir Putin to undermine Ukraine's stability. If there is no physical transit of gas through Ukraine, uh, it increases a chance of a full-scale war between Russia and Ukraine. They know that if they put pressure on people, like, you know, regular households, then they will push their leaders to go and certify this project so it can yep. get up and running. And that's yep. it. I mean, it's incredible. Seeing Merkel stand up and say, no, no Russia would never weaponize Nord Stream 2. Are you kidding? Like, oh, really? We have made it clear that we will seek further sanctions within the European framework if the suspicion that the pipeline is being used as a weapon is confirmed. She went to Ukraine to sell this to Zelensky's administration. <laughs> no. Ukraine will not talk about Nord Stream 2 from the economic point of view. You can see who controls gas prices in Europe now and how they're rising. This is not just about money for Ukraine. This is about their very security. I mean, the pipeline isn't even up and running and they've been weaponizing it. Yeah. They already threatened Ukraine in July and August. Now they are uh, squeezing the shortage and causing prices to go up. Of course, they're going to weaponize it. I mean, honestly. In formal terms, Russia is complying with its contract. But in real terms, that means that winter is coming and the European gas reservoirs that are used as a buffer during the cold winter are right now very much depleted. And so as a result, the spot price of gas in Europe has skyrocketed. So Russia is flexing its muscles and showing that it can regulate the supply of gas in Europe. With the new pipelines, Russia will have more flexibility in doing that. Today, we're going to be welcoming Edward Lucas, Senior Fellow at SIPA. Uh, last week, Edward also announced his candidacy, okay, as MP for London and Westminster. So right? I We're know, it's so excited. exciting. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's professional therapy. And it's much easier to do this from mm -hmm. the safety of your home. I mean, you could sit in your pajamas yep. and, you know, if you feel like talking to someone, log right on. You fill out, you know, whatever information you need to fill out and they match you. So you can communicate with them, you know, quickly when you need to or if you need to talk. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, schedule a weekly video or phone session. For the Kremlin File listeners, there's a special offer, 10% off on your first month. And you go to betterhelp.com slash Kremlin File. Yeah. Okay. And, and you can get the 10% off. So this is really, really great. That's amazing. They did a special offer for Kremlin yeah, file listeners. Exactly. So we hope you go and check it out. And okay. get your 10% off for the first month. That's it. Hello, Edward. Welcome to Kremlin File. Well, thank you so much for having me. Hi, Edward. It's wonderful to have you here as our distinguished guest. In May of this year, you gave invaluable testimony in the U.S. 
at the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Europe, Energy, the Environment, and Cyber. It's probably one of the most concise pictures of Russia's malicious activities that I've read. So let's start here, Edward. As we were saying in previous episodes, we talked about how Russia used their neighboring countries to create, adapt, and perfect the use of hybrid warfare in acts of aggression. For about 10 years, they've been exporting these same methods to attack the West. So can you tell us about what some of these methods are and which particular operations and threats are the most dangerous to us, Edward? Well, thanks for your excellent question, Monique, and we need hours and hours to answer this, but I'm going to try and give (laughs) short short answers. So I think the first thing to say is this is not new. This started in the Soviet era with active measures, and they were refined and adapted even at the time the Soviet Union was collapsing, and they continued in the 1990s when many people thought Russia was a friend. And they were deployed initially in the Baltic states, in Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova. And people from these countries warned us. They warned us right back then in the 1990s, watch out, this is coming for you. And we didn't listen. We were patronizing, we belittled them, and now we're being bitten and bitten hard in some cases. And I think the first thing we have to do is to accept that this may be new to us, but it's new because we weren't paying attention. The cocktail of measures is energy, economic power, disinformation, subversion, cyber, diplomatic pressure, military intimidation, the whole spectrum. There is no part of society which is not potentially vulnerable to Russia's full spectrum joined up approach. And the real problem we have is that we don't think the way that they do. We think in silos, in straight lines, in structures, rules and procedures. And they have this kind of opportunistic, startup, ferment strategic culture. And our system in the West is just not set up to deal with this. Let's talk a little bit about every country, Edward, conducts intelligence operations. And why, though, are Russian intelligence operations more dangerous? One reason is the nature of the Russian state. You know, we get spied on by, Mm. doubtless, Brazil, probably France. Who knows? Countries do smile each other. It's part of negotiating is trying to find out what the other side's bottom line is. And that doesn't matter so much if the other country is basically friendly. It's like a business deal. One side is trying to get the edge over the other. But in the end, life goes on. Russia is trying to overturn the post-1991 Western security order. It wants to bust multilateral organizations. It wants to intimidate its neighbors. It wants to play divide and rule all over the place. So there's already a threat with anything Russia does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's a second point, which is that Russia does not just use its intelligence agencies to collect intelligence. It uses them for influence operations, for active measures. And that's everything from the assassinations that we've seen in London and in Berlin, the kind of quasi-terrorist operations we've seen in um, the Czech Republic, interference in election systems. This goes well beyond traditional espionage. And I should say, we've done that too. British spies, American spies, other countries' spies do that. It's part of the espionage toolkit. But of course, when it's done by a regime like the Kremlin, with its criminal connections, Mm. its imperialist ambitions and so on, it's a lot more worrying. 
we see that one of their most successful operations have been capturing state leaders, influential politicians, parties, business figures, foreign, former military and intelligence operatives. We see that these kind of penetrations are helping to implode their countries and endangering national security and transatlantic alliances. At what point do measures need to be taken? When is the moment to say enough is enough? We should have said enough is enough back in the 90s. <laughs> A <laughs> um, long, long time yes. ago. But you're right? absolutely right. One, the, the greatest danger of all the dangers we face, I think, is Russian influence in our decision making. We need to think that our judges, our politicians, our elected lawmakers, our government officials are making decisions based on the rules and the obligations of our society. And so if you have, for example, senior officials, senior decision makers who go off into really nice jobs, say with a Russian gas company or Russian oil company, mm. that's a real problem yeah. because you can't be sure, are they making the decisions in office that they ought to make or are they making the decisions that will suit their future employer. So we need to be much tougher on this revolving door, people moving out of jobs where they're working for us, the citizens, governed by law, and into the private sector where they're there just to make money. We need to be much tougher on that. That's just one thing. And then there's the whole business of foreign um, influence operations that go on in real time where you have your FARO law, which is great, but it needs to be updated. And many countries don't have that at all. We don't even have a lobbying register in Britain or in Brussels in the European Union. So the idea that anyone is under any obligation to disclose they were paid by the government of country X in order to do Y and in pursuit of that contract right. they did Z, you take that for granted in the United States. We don't have that. Most countries don't have that. And so that gives tremendous scope to the Russians to exert pressure, both using clandestine means and even using overt means. Yeah, exactly. And it's also dangerous because in the case when they hire former military officers and intelligence officials, that's our intelligence being handed basically over to them, which makes it a lot more dangerous. At the uh, beginning of the Biden administration, he came off pretty hawkish towards Russia. And then at the height of Russian troop buildup, Biden reaffirmed his support for Ukraine and their sovereignty against Russian troop aggression. And then suddenly around April, something shifted and then it led to a summit with Putin. And then now the latest green lighting of Nord Stream. What do you think happened? What caused the U-turn? And with this appeasement, is there any room to mitigate the geopolitical fallout from Nord Stream 2? My mind goes back to the Obama administration because you've got the same ideas. You have mm -hmm. some really good people. We had good people in the Obama administration. We've got great people in this administration and great people coming in. These are people mm -hmm. who spent their whole lives dealing with Russia and they really understand it. You have some very good things like the understanding of the importance of allies. And yet at the same time, you also have really disappointing decisions. With Obama, we saw the reset, which was, I think, a defensible mm -hmm. gimmick if it had worked, but was pursued far too hard and for too long and at the expense of our allies. Mm -hmm. And we see the Biden administration meeting Putin and saying, let's Let's try and work on things we can work on, which is fine. Then it turns out that one of the things they can work on is doing a deal um, with Russia and Germany to let the Nord Stream pipeline be built at the expense of allies. So trust is shriveling. But I'm cautious about 
doing a sort of chicken little sort of the fly scoop falling because mm. despite all the disappointments and all the frustrations of the Obama administration we were better at the end of those eight years than we were at the beginning and I suspect in the end we will look back and say Biden we got mad with him quite often but there's some good things happening I think the key thing is we in Europe have to understand that you guys are really busy with China and the best thing we can do is to free up your resources to do with China to help with China not give you extra problems in Europe and show mm -hmm. that we understand the urgency of that threat and I think if the Europeans would do that then things would work out much better with the Biden administration and to follow up on that people often say China is a greater threat than Russia what are your thoughts on it who do you think is more damaging in the sh at least the, the next decade I think the difference is that with Russia, I can see what victory looks like. Mm. Yeah, we are pretty. We, we've done a lot on the military side. Still more to do, but yeah, the, the Nordic Baltic region, which I focus on, is safer than it's ever been in its history. Norway, Sweden, Finland, all working very closely with the United States. Poland working with Lithuania. Contingency plans, new headquarters, a big American presence in Poland. It's not perfect, but I can see how we fix that. I can pretty much see what we need to do in the Black Sea. I can see what we need to do on energy security, on disinformation, on cyber. All these things, there's a map to victory. I don't know if we'll get exactly right. And there are actually many different possible outcomes. We could have Russia becoming friendly, Russia being constrained, Russia descending into some sort of chaos, but we're able to contain the chaos. There's many different outcomes. And mm -hmm. I think we could see any of them in my lifetime. And we just have to keep working. The problem with China is I don't know what victory looks like. Are we aiming for a new Cold War, uncoupling, division, sharp divide? I'm not sure what that is. It seems to me a large chunk of the world is going to take China's side if we go down that sort of division. Are we trying to just constrain it in the in the, the Western Pacific with a kind of new NATO? Are we really going to rely on the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia? Are they really the ingredients of that sort of alliance? I'm not sure yeah. that's going to work. Are we aiming for regime change? Maybe we are, but normally when there's regime change in China, you get 20, 30 million people dying and you know, outcome quite unpredictable. So that's my problem with China. I don't know what victory looks like. And that makes it very hard to work out and see what the tactics are, but I can't see what the strategy is. Actually, talking a little bit more about the importance of allies, Edward, let's go back to the EU for uh, one second, because you touched on this. The transatlantic relationship is a bulwark, as you were talking about how important it is for the EU and the United States to be working together. It seems as though the US is giving Germany a privileged position. I don't know if I'm wrong about this. Over the block as a whole. What is the state? Here's two questions. One, what is the state of the transatlantic relationship right now? Okay, a bit of a photograph of that. And two, will Merkel's, Angela Merkel's, departure change any of that? I think the first thing to say is the transatlantic relationship is not just really important, it's also really strong. The economic, the cultural, the personal ties across the Atlantic are so huge that it, they can suffer a lot of damage. Mm. They suffered a lot of damage during the Trump administration. They survived. Yes. They've been tested in the past with intermediate range nuclear weapons over Vietnam. This is a really important, strong relationship, and one should be careful about talking it down. And in the end, if America wants to get something done, it needs the Europeans first and foremost. So that's just a right. fact. Yeah. I think that the there is a muddle in the Obama administration about what the priorities are. And they've decided that the most important country in Europe is Germany, so let's fix things with Germany. That's great. I'm in favor of that. I think the Germany, you know, the German relationship has been heavily burdened, fought on both sides. 
If I was the United States, I'd wait until after the next election. There is no point in doing a deal with Angela Merkel's government when maybe you're going to be doing a deal with Armin Laschet's government in six, nine months' time. We don't know who's in that government. It's going to be the Greens, it's going to, which would be great. Is it the Social right. Democrats? Maybe less great. FDP? We'll see. And I don't see the, really the virtue now of actually giving concessions on this. So maybe there's some other thinking that I don't know about, but that's just mm -hmm. my thinking. I think that there's a fundamental question about whether the EU can be a real partner. And there's real disappointment in the Biden administration about how weak the EU institutions mm -hmm. and their leaders are. I think that the, the um, experience they had from, from them back in February was not great. And maybe it's never going to be great. Maybe the EU is never going to be the sort of geopolitical partner that they hope for. The one point of light is the European Parliament, which is funny because the United yes. States never was that big on the European Parliament. And yet it's European Parliament, which has yeah. held up the China Agreement yes. on Investment. Exactly. It's the European Parliament that sticks up on human rights, that worries about mm -hmm. Uyghurs and worries about Russia and yeah. so on. So the ground's shifting there a bit. But it's always a work in progress. It's never perfect, but it is still tremendously important. Let's move north, Edward, to a topic that I know that is dear to your heart. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of the Baltic states. Okay, Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia. Why is the military preparedness of this area and the security of these states so important to us? And what can we learn from them? These are two great questions, Monique, and I just so wish that you were Secretary of State or something like that, because you know, <laughs> these are just what we need, need to ask, particularly the second one. If we have a sharp security crisis in the Baltic states, a land grab, something that we don't predict, a forced change of government, any one of these sort of threats ranging from real military through to something else, and we don't react... They appeal for Article 5. They don't get it. NATO, NATO misses, decides too slowly. The Americans don't get there in time. That's the end of NATO. Yeah. That's the end of decades of the transatlantic security guarantee. Yeah. And the Baltic states are difficult to defend. They are thin. There's, not, there's nowhere to retreat to. They're flat. There's nothing that stops the Russians. Um, um, they don't have air defenses. We have symbolic NATO presences there. The Brits in Estonia, perhaps the most serious, Canadians in Latvia, French, uh, Germans in Lithuania. We have great cooperation between Poland and Lithuania, which I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. But in the end, if Russia chooses to attack, it's hard. So we need really good ISR. We need to be able to see what are they planning. We have good early warning. Your second question is just super important. These countries know stuff. They smell things we can't smell. They see things that we can't see. They understand things we don't understand. They know things we don't know. And the most useful thing I think we can do is to learn from learn respectfully and attentively, because they understand the Russian mindset in a way that we mostly don't. Yes, I agree. We have seen a lot of cyber attacks and it's been in the news almost every few weeks. We've seen Russian hackers targeting NATO military, hacking their smartphones, running anti-NATO fake news campaigns. They targeted hospitals and healthcare institutions at the height of COVID to disrupt patient care and steal COVID research. They've been targeting our critical infrastructure and basically anything that they can get their hands on to sow chaos. What countermeasures can the U.S. and EU adopt against these cyber attacks? And what can we learn from Russia's neighbors that were basically testing grounds? Like in Ukraine's case, I think they pretty much experienced and continue to experience a lot of the cyber attacks we're seeing in the West right now. If there was an easy answer to this, we'd be doing it. And the reason we haven't done it is that it's hard. And we're not used to these threats. 
some stuff we used to know during the Cold War and we forgot. Other stuff uses new technology, which we are not, we haven't really worked out how to deal with. And so the answer is complicated. But one thing is to boost resilience. If you see rain coming in through your roof, through a window, through a door, get a new roof, get a new door, do the, the, the basics. Those don't necessarily work straight away, but we can do that. We need civics education, media awareness, training in schools, counter-messaging, try and understand why people, what are the psychological and social stresses that make people believe in conspiracy theories anyway, because that's something that the Russians can exploit, worrying about polarization and other fractures in our society. Mm -hmm. that's, there's a lot of stuff we can do, which one can broadly call resilience. Obviously, the critical infrastructure, worrying about the cybersecurity there is very important. And then there's a sort of second broad category, which is deterrence, which is if you attack us, we do things that hurt you. So don't attack us. And we have not yet worked out how we do deterrence in this kind of gray zone. There's a lot of thinking about it, but do we respond in kind? Probably not, partly because what the Russians do is unethical, so we don't want to go down that unethical part, partly because it's too predictable. You know, if they disrupt our power grid, we don't necessarily want to disrupt theirs. We should do something else that bothers them. But we really need to work out how our escalation ladder works when it comes to these grey threats, how we signal, and this is what we're going to do, this is where we're going to, where we're going to stop, and if you can do it again, this is what we're going to do next. We need to have that kind of certainty, which you have in the military kinetic sphere, pretty much. But we need to bring that over into the grey zone. And it is really difficult. Do you see it improving over the past five years, say? Are countries realizing the significance of this threat of cyber attacks and being able to come in to disrupt our power plants? Oh, yeah, I think you're right. We appreciate the significance, but we're still at what I call admiring the problem. We're going, oh, wow, isn't this a big, interesting, difficult problem? You need to really show that there's a real cost to this. If you are working with our enemies, it's going gonna, it's gonna to matter. Your listeners may know the story of Timo Kivamagi, who was a Danish-Finnish academic working in Denmark, who was spying on his students for the Russians for money. Wow. He was caught by Danish counterintelligence with the help of Western countries. They filmed him handing over an envelope with details of his students for money. He went to prison. He was prosecuted. And it was a difficult case because he didn't have access to secrets. He said, I can't be a spy because I don't know any secrets. But he was prosecuted. Mm -hmm. He served four months of house arrest because this is Denmark. So not exactly, you know, we're not talking Alcatraz here. <laughs> and many people said, well, that's great. That sets a benchmark. He's now working as a senior academic at a British university, and nobody thinks that's wrong. Oh. Now, if you sleep with your students as an academic, your life's over. That's right. really bad. Right. But if you yes. spy on them, if you spy on them, that's okay. And well, it was another country a long time ago, and who used to say that it was you know, worse than doing it for the Americans or whatever? And there's all this moral equivalent sort of phony baloney blah, blah stuff. Sure. So we've got to change the way we think about this and think our freedom. Our security, our safety is under threat from these countries, and we are not doing enough about it. It's everybody's responsibility to catch these people and then to deter them. What you're saying is actually quite inspiring, Edward. And it brings me back to March 2020. I had the opportunity of listening to a roundtable that SIPA okay, had hosted, and it was specifically on COVID disinformation. You were part of the panel. In fact, you said in that occasion that we had to rethink security holistically. 
Okay. Because a lot of our methods are outdated and this is what you're, you know, what you're implying as well. NATO is also reviewing its response to some current scenarios and threats. And you talked about this need right in March. I remember it clearly. You talked about this need to build up resilience and awareness through civic action, national level, and also an international toolkit. This is what you were talking about. So can you expand a little more on that, Edward? What What is, let's say, the whole, I think it was something that I was reading the other day, the whole approach or the whole of society approach. What yes. is that? Well, we need, a, I think we need a whole of government approach and a whole of society approach. And that's true when we're dealing with Russia or with the Chinese Communist Party. So you've got to think, as I said earlier, every point in your society is potentially under attack. So university, not normally something that you think hard about from a national security point of view, except maybe in some you know, classified engineering, military technology spheres. And that immediately puts people in from the education, the higher education world with all their autonomy and academic principles and everything into the firing line. I just raised money. I raised a huge amount of money from the Chinese. And now you're telling me that I I mustn't on any, I've got to do stuff that's going to make the Chinese mad at me and I'll lose all my fundraising. How can you tell me to do that? I'm an independent university. Well, sorry, we care about intellectual freedom in another sense. And we don't want our universities to be bought and browbeaten by the Chinese Communist Party. So the, you, you've, we've got to stop thinking about national security as stuff that happens in the classified realm with you know, defense, intelligence agents and so on. It's something that affects all of us. Exactly. We've seen recently, especially this year, for some reason, it's been more frequent. But we know that Russia deploys a lot of Russian intelligence officers, both GRU, SVR, across Europe. In cases, they work with people inside the country. Like in Italy, there was a captain arrested for working with a Russian intelligence officer, passing up over secrets. We've seen it in Czech Republic. Bulgaria, Latvia, Poland. Recently, something just happened to that effect. We have seen these countries exposing these operations more, especially with Czech Republic when they revealed the ammo depot um, bombings that took place in 2014. Not only did they expel a bunch of Russian diplomats who some of them were uh, cover for agents, but they also published a list of showing which department and director these agents are working for. For me, from someone from the outside, it looks like a great way to expose these people, to disrupt these operations inside the countries. Why are we not seeing more of this done? Like we've seen it done in Eastern European countries. We haven't seen it done, for instance, as much in Germany, United States, France, and so on. Well, I think that this breakthrough from Bellingcat exemplifies what's wrong with Russia and what actually what a much harder target China is because we're able to hack into Russia, it's corrupt, leaky, badly run country. And we get stuff either by Bellingcat buys it or they get it from publicly available databases or some pass it on to them. And they're able to do fantastic things by identifying you know, sequences of passports. Every one of those passports is issued to a Russian intelligence officer. It's a spy catcher's dream. We can then work out when do these people come, what do they do, who do they meet. We put mobile phone data and payment data and other things into the mix and we start getting a and so i think our counterintelligence people all over the west are busy following up on that and it's great it's much harder to do with china 
um, because the Chinese look after their databases. Yeah, they're good at hacking us. They hacked the OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, and got a trove of personal security clearance data for American officials. Wow. Terrible counterintelligence brief, which I don't think I don't think we're able to do that to them. And so I. I think that there's there is scope for this, and there's a lot more, and I suspect there's more in the works. And I don't think Bellingcat has given up and sitting on with folded mm-hmm. arms saying we've done our jobs. So I look forward yeah. to more revelations, but uh, it, it, it just underlines to me that Russia is so much an easier target than China. Okay, and do you think more countries should be exposing these operations, making it public, and shaming, naming, and shaming these Russian and intelligence officers? Yes, you've seen it quite a bit with the Allied response to Salisbury and to Verbitica in the Czech Republic. And there's plenty of room for sort of better intelligence, diplomacy and cooperation on this. And I think we need to work particularly on the soft spots and the places where Russia is able to act with impunity. Austria comes to mind, a nest of spies. And we're only as strong because of the way the Schengen um, area operates, we're only as strong as our weakest links. If there's one country in Schengen which is letting in Russian spies, they can just get on a train or in a car and drive all over the place and, you know, and everyone else is at risk. Okay. Recently, Lukashenko announced that he is considering deploying, allowing Russian troops to be deployed in uh, Belarus. They've already started arriving for exerc- joint exercises. In your assessment, do you think Putin will continue escalating his activities and invade or annex Belarus? Also, do you see Belarus becoming like a military launch pad for future attacks against their neighboring countries, like what they did with basically Crimea? Well, Belarus is a huge problem and there are no good outcomes. One outcome is that it's annexed by Russia. Another is that it carries on as a rogue state not being annexed by Russia, but still making terrible problems for the outside world. I think Lukashenko's room for manoeuvre has been diminishing sharply. Mm. And he's on the, Putin extracts political and military concessions in exchange for economic help. And it's really, I think, it exemplifies the way in which we don't have a strategy. Putin does. Mm. Putin knows he can reel in Belarus. He can use it, I think, particularly to threaten Ukraine. And that's the real problem. The um, Ukrainians don't worry about their northern frontier at the moment because they regard Belarus mm. as a friendly country. If you have Russian troops based in temporarily or permanently, then Ukraine has to worry about that. And that makes life a lot more difficult for them in the east. Yep. And with speaking of Ukraine, do you see any kind of escalation in the near future by Russia? against Ukraine because their Russian troop buildup is pretty much at much higher levels than in 2014. And over the spring, they moved in a lot of military equipment and basically left it behind. Yes, it's worth it. It's a war on nerve. You know, they ramp it up. Some people cry wolf and say, my goodness, there's going to be a war. And everyone gets really scared. And then there isn't a war. People say, well, that was the Ukrainians crying wolf. But there, there was a big build up. And it's worth Russia doing this just as a military exercise, just to see how quickly they can move large numbers of troops and equipment all over the place. And there's a good military reason for doing that, aside from the kind of psychological warfare of doing it on Ukraine's borders. Mm-hmm. So I'm cautious about predicting this. I think Russia is inherently opportunistic. When it sees weakness, it takes advantage. And if it doesn't see weakness, then it waits until there is weakness. So I think Ukraine's doing reasonably well at the moment. I don't think, I don't see an obvious reason for Russia to attack. We should listen to the Ukrainians, mm-hmm. listen carefully, not just to the ones who talk the most, but the ones who talk the most sense. Hmm. Yep. And with that, in the case, there are 
are any escalations on Ukraine, Georgia, or anywhere, is NATO prepared to respond in any way? Or would they even respond? NATO is not going to respond to anything in Ukraine as NATO, but NATO countries can. And we've seen the Royal Navy, for example, doing an innocent passage yes. um, into the waters off Crimea, which we regard as Ukrainian, but the Russians regard as Russian. And the Russians getting quite cross about it. And that underlined the point that we that's what we think about the Black Sea. And there's plenty of room for other people to do that. So we've got, we, we have cards we can play. We can give more weapons to Ukraine, sell more weapons, give them more diplomatic support. But I think the real problem is that you know, Ukraine's had a hefty kick because of Nord Stream 2. Mm. That was a sign mm. that in the end, America put other things first. And that is demoralizing for the Ukrainians and encouraging for the Russians. It also, incidentally, has encouraged the Ukrainians to think more um, closely about doing deals with China, which I mm. worry about. Yeah. yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask a question? <laughs> I'm really curious about this, Edward. I'm used to thinking in strengths and weaknesses, and I don't know whether this is right to do it this way or not. but what are Russia's weaknesses that we're not taking advantage of? That's a long list. You need a whole separate podcast for that. <laughs> I think I think that the key okay. thing is that the Kremlin isn't very popular. Ultimately, Russians accept it because they don't see any alternative, but they don't like it. And the kind of the glitz and glory of Crimea has worn off. We saw you know, big protests in Khabarovsk. We've seen people downloading Navalny videos mm -hmm. in large numbers. People don't like the incompetence and they don't like the corruption that sort of you know, is associated with the incompetence. And they don't like the isolation, many of them. They want, they know they live in a cultural superpower that should be contributing totally integrated into world culture. And there's, so there's plenty to work on, but in the end, we have systematically failed to do this. We've always managed to get it wrong. And often this wonderful Russian um, phrase of a, of a bear's a bear's service, uh, which is uh, like the kiss of death. We, we try to do the right thing and end up making things worse. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be very humble in our approach to Russia. Almost everything we've tried has been either useless or counterproductive. And I think that the best thing we can do is to make sure that Ukraine's success and that our allies are strong and that we live up to our own values in the West. And the more we do that, the easier it is for our friends in Russia and the harder it is for the Kremlin. And do you think Europe and U.S. are tightening up laws to stop the flow of money from Russia that funds operations and that they just park in Western countries would have a significant impact on the Kremlin if done correctly? Absolutely. And we've already seen it. So I'm very much in favor of Magnitsky sanctions. And I've worked with Bill Browder in this country and others to push them through and to get people aware of why they're needed. And targeting individuals and their money and with their, their money and their visas is a useful tactic. It's, it, it certainly works. But I think much more broadly, we need to worry about the way our financial system works altogether. And my home city of London is a kind of financial brothel, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. You know, we yes. launder money and sell respectability to the worst people in the world. There's plenty of problems in the United States as well. I'm, I'm delighted that, that the Congress has now got hold of this. And there's a bipartisan consensus with the Crook Act and Repel and the Anti-Corruption mm -hmm. Caucus and the NDAA, which was passed back in 
January. So there's movement in the United States, but you need to squeeze all your allies and to make good on the promises that you've made to the American people. Because we can fix this. And what the great paradox of this is there were no Russian tanks rolling down Wall Street in the city of London saying, accept our dirty money or we open fire. (laughs) We did did this to ourselves because we were greedy and complacent and naive and maybe a bit crooked. And we did it to ourselves. That means we can undo it. We just have to understand that this is a threat and want to clean it up. Exactly. Yes. We're not doing much better here in Italy as well. We'll, uh, I think there's a lot of money that's being laundered through Italian banks and things like that. But that's just my comment. It's not. Yeah, um, no, I'm proud of United States because actually this year they really taken an effort and Congress, very rare, they're bipartisan on anything. These days are taking a bipartisan look at this and working together to try to enact these measures. And with that said, one follow up, we see Russia's, well, Putin's criminal (laughs) Thugs, I call them, but Putin's oligarchs suing, for instance, Catherine Belton, who wrote this fabulous book, Putin's People, very factual, very well researched, and they're using a London court to sue her. What can the West do to allow journalists and dissidents to feel safe to speak out against corruption or expose corruption when they're doing it in their own countries? Because Russia, basically, they have done this inside of Russia forever, where they feel they could silence journalists. But now they're taking it to silencing journalists in Western countries. Be grateful for the First Amendment, listeners in America. We have reformed our libel law and made it a lot better. I campaigned for that. And we have defenses. And I think that Catherine has is a great, is a very close friend of mine, has, with the tremendous support of her publishers, has largely fought off this. I ran a libel defense, not for a mistake that I'd made, but for some, something that someone else had made. And it cost my then employer half a million pounds just wow. not to lose. You know, rich newspapers and rich publishers can afford that, but the little ones can't. And so what you get is a kind of chilling effect where people just say this is going to be too much trouble. And we need to think about this. There's this phrase slaps strategic lawsuits against public participation. We need to think, how do we defend people? Do we Can we have some kind of insurance mm. that you get automatic public insurance? Can we change the libel law to make it less expensive? Can we go to speedy, early, low-cost arbitration at the beginning? Which Because the great asset these people have is not actually that they've been libeled. Mm-hmm. The great asset they have is they can afford really expensive lawyers. And it's like city, the worst taxi ride you've ever been in. The meter's just spinning and spinning and spinning. And you're thinking, <laughs> I'm, at some point, I'm just going to have to get out of this cab because I can't afford it. And that's what it's like. I've been in meetings that cost thousands and thousands of dollars an hour. So all the lawyers are there and it's a Sunday night late. They're all charging double or treble their billable hours. And you just wow. think, my money's just disappearing here. And uh, but it's terrifying. And for the oligarchs who are suing, this is just nothing. They don't even, they, you know, this is less than the cost of a tank, a tank yeah. of fuel for their third best yacht, even the plane fuel a bit. It's a drop in the bucket. Edward, thank you so much. Great. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com, and find our links to our socials in the show notes. This is Season 1, Kremlin File, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara. This is a Bunker Crew Media production with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound engineering by Mike Greenberg. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.
puffy pastries are are magic. Puffy pastries, puffy pastries. <laughs>